Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. want to again invite you back tonight, 5 o'clock in this room, where we will take an hour or so and dive far more deeply into our text for today and talk through all the, all the stuff involved there. We've had a great time the last two that we've done that. So tonight, 5 o'clock, hope to see you then. The American author and politician Bruce Barton wrote, Sometimes when I consider what tremendous consequences come from little things, I am tempted to think there are no little things. The doctrine of union with Christ that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks in Ephesians, it could seem like a little thing. It could merely be a way for the Apostle Paul to refer to the realities of salvation. It could merely be considered as shorthand for Paul's ideas about salvation. But once a person begins to comprehend the enormous consequences of this particular doctrine, it becomes clear that it is no little thing. In fact, if a person takes their cue from the consequences of this doctrine, it would be easy and it would be correct to conclude that the doctrine of union with Christ is the most important doctrine in all the world. For the last two sermons in Ephesians, we've covered two texts very in-depth. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, showing us that salvation is summarized by stating that believers are in Christ. Blessing comes from God only on those who are in Christ. God the Father loves those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit eternally seals those who are in Christ. Jesus forgives those who are in Him. Grace is shown to those in Christ. Mercy is granted to those in Christ. And outside of Christ, you are in sin. Outside of Christ, you are in death. And all of what it means to be saved, all of what it means to be a Christian, is summed up by those two little words, in Christ. But what does that mean? I mean, in Christ is a pretty vague, fairly mystical sort of phrase. It means that you have been incorporated into Christ, or you now live in the sphere that is Christ. Think of it this way, and on Sunday nights we've talked about this a little bit. Think of it this way, this room is Christ. This room has borders. There are clear lines for being inside of it or outside of it. And outside of this room are nothing but sin and death and destruction. There is no hope. There's no joy. There's no life. There's no forgiveness. There's no blessing. Only inside this room can you experience any of those things. So God, in his kindness, mercifully saves some of those people who live outside of this room, and he opens their eyes to the reality of their sin. He flips the switch to cause them to believe the truth of the gospel message, and he saves them. He resurrects their dead soul 
by placing them in this room. He takes those who are outside of this room, he picks them up dead in sin and causes them to live by anchoring them in here. And now that you are in this room, all of the blessings from God are yours to have because this is the sphere in which you can have them all. Forgiveness is yours. Life is yours. Salvation is yours. All because God put you in here. And now, everything about your life, your faith, your reality, your eternal destination, your everyday life, all of it is defined by the fact that you are in Christ. But what does that do to your life? I mean, what difference would that make? What are the consequences of living in Christ? Well, there are countless dominoes that fall. After you've been saved, you realize you're in Christ and all that that entails. There are a bunch of dominoes that fall. But in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has one in particular in mind. And it is the theme of the entire letter of Ephesians. And now that Paul has established the doctrine of union with Christ in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he will now expound and he will explain what it does in your life and how to live in that reality every single day. So here is the foundational theme of the entire book of Ephesians. Union with Christ creates unity with Christians. That, when you think about it, it really makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because if I'm united to Christ, and you're united to Christ, guess what that means about the two of us? We are in Christ together. We're by default united to one another. It is inescapable. So for the rest of the letter, Paul's going to explain that theologically, and he's going to explain it practically. And our text for today is the theological explanation for this primary consequence of being in union with Christ as it creates unity with Christians. And then the rest of the text that we'll look at for the next month or so, looking at the 40 different commands that are given in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, all of them are to be understood as what it looks like to live out unity with Christians. So let's go to the text. Here is the theological explanation of what Christ has done by causing this unity. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, he might create the two into one new man, making peace, 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now there are vertical aspects to salvation between you and God. But there are horizontal aspects to salvation between you and all others who are in Christ with you. So let's walk through this together. First, let's look at the absence of unity. As Paul did in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where he talks about salvation by beginning with the bad news first, and then he talks about the good news. Here, Paul again begins by presenting the truth by starting with the negative. The Gentiles, all the non-Jews, the nations, they are, verse 11, Gentiles in the flesh. They're called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. The Jews who were virtually alone Globally, in their commitment to circumcision, they had this physical marker that indicated they were recipients, the sole recipients of God's covenant love and of his promises. Everybody else, well, they're out. And to flesh out this stark contrast between the insider Jews and the outsider Gentiles, Paul summarizes their lack of unity with one another with five deficiencies that the Gentiles have. Verse 12, they are without Christ. That's quite a deficiency. Due to their lack of knowledge of the Holy One of Israel, they have no knowledge of who Christ is. They wouldn't even have known what that term meant. Messiah is a Jewish term. Christ is the, the Greek equivalent. They, they're not religious. They don't care. They have no idea what this even means or who Christ would be. So without any knowledge of a promised Messiah, they have no hope personally. They have no hope nationally. Secondly, he says they're alienated from the citizenship of Israel. They're outsiders. Paul only uses that term alienated two other times. And both of them are in reference to being alienated from God. And the implication is the same here. Due to the Gentile exclusion from Israel and the Jews' exclusive relationship with God, by default, the Gentiles are excluded from God too. Because if you're not in with us, you're not in with God. It's really simple. Third, they're strangers to the covenants of promise. God had promised his people that he's going to work in and through Israel. He's going to bless them. He's going to protect them. Well, outside of Israel, you're a stranger to that promise. You're a stranger to that reality. And fourth, they have no hope. Just like being without Christ has some messianic overtones. They don't know Christ, therefore they don't have any hope. That's what's going on here. 
The Gentiles are ignorant of God's word. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't know who God is. They don't have the revelation of his character. They don't have the revelation of his will. They have none of that. So there is nothing. And there is no one for them to place their hope in to be saved. And lastly, he says they are without God in the world. And to explain that, Paul uses a term that's used only here in the entire New Testament. They are without God. It's the Greek word atheos, which comes into English as atheist. Because God is only concerned with Israel, the Gentiles are so excluded from God, it is as if God doesn't even exist to them. Chapter 2, 1 to 3, offered this comprehensive condemnation on humanity because of its sin. 2, 11, and 12 offers a comprehensive condemnation on the Gentiles because of their lack of relationship with God and with God's people. So there's a clear lack of unity between Jews and Gentiles. The, the two groups could not be more opposite in every way imaginable. And everything that divides them is absolutely insurmountable until Christ steps in. Number two, the accomplishment of unity. So after, in verse 11 and verse 12, laying out the darkness of their disunity, verse 13 shines like a beacon of hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a great verse. The Gentiles were far off, perfectly describing all the deficiencies from verse 12. But now, in Christ Jesus, they're close to God. They're in union with Christ. They're now in the room. They've been brought in. And this has happened solely by the work of Jesus. It's by the blood of Christ. His sacrifice wasn't just for the Jews. His sacrifice wasn't only for the religious. It was for those who would come from all over the world. And while all that is true theologically, that is not Paul's point here. It is not the disunity between the Gentiles and God that he's focusing on. It's the disunity that existed between the Gentiles and the Jews. Brought near isn't talking about you've been brought near to God. You've been brought near to us, to God's people. We have been brought together. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, making both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. The peace that he's talking about is not peace with God. He'll talk about that in a minute. The peace that he's talking about is the peace that exists now between God's people from different backgrounds. He is marveling that God in Christ would bring people like Jews and Gentiles together. He's our peace. Where there was once disunity, where there was once hostility, there's now peace. Peace is the theme of the whole text. He uses the word four different times. Verse 16, he talks about reconciliation. Verse 14, he talks about both groups becoming one. Verse 15, they're now one new man. 
Even the antonym, the opposite of peace, is used twice. The word enmity. Verse 15, verse 16. And those who have lived in enmity, disunity, hatred, discord, they're now totally in unity in Christ. Well, how does Jesus accomplish something so fantastic? Well, he goes on to explain three actions that Christ did that accomplished that peace. First, he made both groups into one. Well, that sounds cute. He's not, though, talking about some sociological truth that all Jews and all Gentiles now exist as one person in some human-based unity, and we should all get together and have Michael Jackson sing, We Are the World. It's not what he's talking about. This is only for those who are in Christ. Jews who are now in Christ and Gentiles who are now in Christ are one. Outside of Christ, there's nothing but division and disunity and forever will be. But in Christ, he's unified them as one new group. And the the critical importance of that cannot be overstated. The Jews and the Gentiles had hated each other for eight centuries. And all of it is healed in an instant in Christ. I'm not sure what metrics people would use maybe to divide themselves from you, or maybe what metrics you would use to divide yourself from other people. Things like money, things like skin color, things like status and heritage or political views. If you're in Christ and they're in Christ, none of the other stuff matters. It's all gone. It's been erased. And that's what Paul deals with next. He says Christ has broken down the dividing wall. Everything that would stand between you and another Christian has been demolished. Verse 15, Christ has done this by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What does that mean? Well, the Old Testament law was the means by which the Jews lived out their covenant with God. It is their covenant. God had said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and here's how this works. Here's my law, live this way. All of the commands, all of the statutes, all of the ordinances, 613 of them in the pages of your Old Testament. God's law is what separated the Jews from the rest of the world. They had his will, the rest of the world does not. They know God, the rest of the world does not. They're unique, they're special. This is how they live out their relationship with God. But Christ abolished that. Now, we have to be really careful here. Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 that he did not come to do away with God's law. He came to fulfill it. So the Old Testament law is not completely gone. We don't just get to rip out the first 39 books of our Bible and set them ablaze and not worry about them anymore. Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, those 40 commands, all of them are built on God's moral law from the Old Testament. It's not irrelevant at all. So what Paul means is that the law, as the way in which you live out a relationship with God, has been abolished. 
It's a word that means nullified. So the law that set the Jews apart, that made them what they were, it's how they had a relationship with God, it is now useless for that purpose. Because now, a relationship with God is available not by obeying the law. A relationship with God is available in Christ. Because he's the only one who perfectly lived God's law. You didn't, I didn't. So it's a good thing that our relationship with God isn't based on how well you follow those 613 commands. I don't know about you, I'm out. I've been disqualified since day one. So all of that is erased, and now a relationship with God in Christ is open to the Jews, and it's open to people from every nation in the world. And because of this work, Christ has created the two groups into one new man. The church is a new creation. It's a new entity that did not exist before Christ. There is no church in the Old Testament. This is solely a New Testament concept. The church only exists in Christ because in him, all the disunity is gone. Our unity is based on our union with Christ. Verse 16. It might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. So Jew and Gentile alike, by Christ's saving work, are reconciled to God. Before he was talking about peace between people. Now he's talking about peace with God. They've been placed in union with Christ, and that union with Christ has created unity now with Christians. So notice everything that he's accomplished. Jesus has accomplished vertical unity by reconciling sinners with God. He's placed them in union with Christ, and now you are in union with him. How great that is. What we neglect to talk about is that he has accomplished horizontal unity by reconciling sinners, not just with God, but with one another. And that's true for all Christians. Unity is to be the dominant posture. Unity is to be the dominant desire of all Christians. Disunity must never be tolerated. Disunity is quite literally anti-Christ. Number three, the application of unity. Now he closes out this section by explaining this new reality that has come because of union and unity. Verse 19, so then, so here's the application. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Now, all of that's in direct opposition to their deficiencies in verse 12. This is what was wrong with you, but now it's all been fixed. You're no longer strangers because before they were strangers to the covenant of promise. Well, in Christ, that's no longer true. And from here on out, Paul will use citizenship imagery. He'll use household images to describe this new reality for people in Christ. They're not strangers anymore. They're not outsiders. He says they're not sojourners, a word that means resident aliens. It's those who don't belong. They're fellow citizens with 
God's people. They're not refugees anymore. They're not second-class citizens in someone else's homeland. They belong here. This is their home. And that's the particular image that Paul hammers home. I mean, you can be a citizen of a nation and be part of a large and nameless, faceless crowd. But that's not true. They're members of God's family in God's own household. That's not stranger. So in these four verses, 19, 20, 21, and 22, Paul uses six different words that all have the Greek word for house as the root word. Because he wants them to know. He wants you to know. You are at home with God. And you have a family now. You're not an orphan anymore. He establishes the family dynamic. He then switches immediately to a building, like a construction dynamic. Verse 20, God's people having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of New Testament Christianity is the preaching and the theology of the apostles and the prophets. What we now know as the New Testament. So these Gentiles, as they've come in to the church, they stand on the same foundation as the Jews. So they don't have a different entrance point into membership that the Jews had. There's not a different place to stand of you guys are on this side and you guys are on this side. It's not that Jewish Christians stand on the Old Testament and Gentile Christians stand on the New Testament. All Christians enter God's family through one door, union with Christ. And they stand on the same solid foundation where Christ is the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. In ancient structures, the cornerstone, I mean, today it's just kind of decorative. We've got one right out in the hallway out there. The, the cornerstone in ancient structures was the first stone to be laid and the most important stone to be laid. Because from that one stone, the entire structure was determined. Its size, its scope, the direction that it would face for the entire structure is based on one stone. And every other stone in the building, no matter where it sits or how high it is off the ground, all other pieces in the building find their direction, find their purpose by their relationship to the cornerstone. Where it sits, everyone else is connected to it. The direction it faces determines where everybody else faces. It is the central focus of the whole building. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. God's people are joined together. It's a word that Paul invented there are several in Ephesians that he just made up, a new vocabulary, but it's a word that purposely emphasizes the closeness that exists among God's people. So those who would say things like, I love Jesus, but not the church, are dead wrong. You can't love Jesus and not the church. If you don't love the church, 
you do not love its cornerstone. You can't love one and not the other. It's a package deal. So those who would say that they're a part of a church, but then they stay on the margins, and they're uninvolved, and they're not known, they're not choosing to know others, they're not actively placing themselves in unity with one another, participating in the life of God's people. Those who do that on the margins are placing themselves in opposition to Christ's work in them and in the church. You ever seen a group of little kids play soccer? Pure entertainment. Because when a group of little kids play soccer, they don't actually play soccer. Very few of them actually ever touch the ball. We call it cluster ball. Because you can always tell where the soccer ball is on the field because there's a cluster of kids just around it. They just kind of hover around the ball. Nobody wants to touch it. Nobody wants to kick it. They all, you know, nobody wants to kick anybody else because uh, the ones that want to kick other people, they don't let them play soccer. <laughs> and they just kind of hover around it. And nothing happens in the game until one of those players decides to engage and kick the ball. You, you can't hover. You have to do something. That's what he's talking about for the church. There are all these people who hover around it. They come every six, eight weeks. And when they're here, they smile and are kind. They throw a little bit of money in the box at the door on the way out. They take communion and they drink some coffee. They probably have a donut because can you be a Christian and not have donuts and coffee? I say no. <laughs> and they leave and they pat themselves on the back and go, man, I'm an awesome Christian. No, you're not. Based on Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, you're not. You can't hover on the margins and say, I'm part of the church. You're not part of the church. You have to engage. You have to step in and know and be known. That is the connection that exists only among God's people. Don't hover, engage. So we're a building. Each person is this unique stone in a vital role in the structure. He's building his unified people into a particular kind of building. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. That built together is another one of Paul's made up coined terms. It's used only here in the entire New Testament. So we saw in chapter 2, 1 to 10, that salvation is union with Christ. You are made alive together, verse 5. You're raised up together and seated together with him in verse 6. So you see, it's all united together with him. Well, unity with Christians is defined in the same way. Verse 21, you're joined together. Verse 22, you're built together. Do you see the theme? You are together in Christ, so that God, by his spirit, can dwell, not just within an individual believer, but so that God can dwell in and among his unified people. In America, we have this fascination with an individualized faith 
And we use phrases like my personal relationship with Jesus, which is not at all a biblical phrase. It's sad and incomplete. Yes, you do have a personal relationship with Jesus. He's saved you. He's placed you into union with him. But that automatically includes everybody else who's in union with Christ too. All of God's people are in the same place. You don't get to live out your faith in isolation, just you and Jesus. Your faith is lived out in and among his people. Union with Christ automatically includes the church, and you can't have one without the other. If you reject the church, you are by default rejecting Christ along with it. He's placed you in unity with Christians, and you are to live in and work out that unity in all of your relationships with God's people. But we dare not forget the unity that you and I have that has been created by Christ stems directly from your union with Christ. And it was all over the text, wasn't it? Verse 13, in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Verse 15, in his flesh. Verse 15, in himself. Verse 16, through the cross. Verse 16, in himself. Verse 17, he came and preached peace. Verse 18, through him. Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself. Verse 21, in whom? Verse 21, in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom? What stands at the center of the unity that you and I have? He does. Friends, God, out of his mercy, placed you in union with Christ. And God, out of his mercy, placed you in unity with Christians. Both are a gift. Both are a grace in your life that he's given to you because he loves you. You were an outsider. You were a stranger to God and to his people. You were without God. You were without hope. You were without Christ. But God. Chapter 2, verse 4. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you were included. You've been adopted as God's own son and daughter. And you've been gifted brothers and sisters in Christ. And you are not alone. You have family you are part of God's own household in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, passages like this are challenging. They can be hard to understand. And they're certainly hard to live out. 
But before we get to the back half of the letter and all of the practical stuff that we love, the how-to, we have to understand the theological foundation on which all of that stuff is built. This is what you've done. This is what you have accomplished for your people. You have taken people who have nothing in common. You've taken people who have been in enmity with one another. You've taken people who've been in disunity. You've taken people who have all of these things about their life that would cause them to separate from others. And you've brought us together in Christ. And you've erased all of those other distinctions that we've used to create these little tribes that we live in. But that doesn't exist in the church. Because all that is set aside, all that's been abolished. None of those things matter in Christ. Because all that would divide us has been removed from between us. And now as your people, we live in complete unity with one another. Standing on the foundation that is Christ, the one thing in common that supersedes everything else. And all of this was done because you've saved us. Because you've placed us in Christ Jesus. By your mercy, you initiated salvation. You forgave our sin. You came to us. You sought after us. You convicted us of our sin. You flipped the switch and opened up our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And now, in Christ, we are together. So thank you, not only for the salvation that we have in union with Christ, that now we are at peace with God. Thank you for the peace that exists only among your people in Christ. We celebrate that together. And as we do every week, we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and we are reminded of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Not the work of Jesus on my behalf or any individual's behalf, but corporately as your combined people, the work that you have accomplished on our behalf that united us with you and together with one another. We celebrate that now in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.